Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Let me start with the ridiculous. Michael Fabricant used to share an office corridor with me and therefore shared a postman. He answered for me the almost indecipherable question, is it a wig? By telling me that Michael Fabricant had in fact three wigs. One that looked like he just had a haircut, one that was the optimal length and one that was so long and unkempt that it looked like he needed a haircut, which the next week he would appear to have. A more ridiculous figure, it's hard to imagine in the British Parliament. And yet all day and every day, and he's now trending number one on Twitter in Britain, Michael Fabricant seems to be Boris Johnson's most stalwart defender. I make no criticism of that. It's good to be loyal to your leader if you feel that you can be, uh, but it tells a story uh, that Michael Fabricant is Boris Johnson's most indefatigable defender. It tells the story that he's definitely not out of the woods. That's because somebody called Sue Gray, this entire show is about people you've never heard of, by the way, Billy Rag, Nusrat Ghani, Sue Gray. She could be a character from Little Britain, for all I know. But she holds the fate of the British Prime Minister in the palm of her hand right now, because on Tuesday, she will report on her investigation into parties at Downing Street during the lockdown. How many trestle tables constitutes a party? How many sausage rolls makes the distinction between a work event and a party? How far apart were the party goers when they clinked their wine glasses? All of the big stuff is coming out on Tuesday. And actually, the British media is filled with virtually nothing else. That and another cockamamie story are that the whips in Parliament have been putting the thumbscrews on recalcitrant members of Parliament. I've not got any thumbs. After nearly 30 years of being thumbscrewed, you would find it difficult to straighten my thumbs. The idea that Scotland Yard should be invited in to roam around the corridors of the House of Commons because somebody called Billy Rag, who's called a senior Tory MP, he's 34 in fact, and has been in Parliament for six years. That means he came in in 2015. He's 34 years old, but he's a senior Tory MP. They're always 
senior when a journalist wants to add weight and gravitas to the story. He claims uh, that the Conservative Whip's office put the heavy on him in order to get him to vote in a certain way. It then turned out that actually he was accusing Pike, Gavin Williamson, don't tell him your name, Pike, of having threatened to withdraw a school that was to be built in his constituency if he did not uh, support the government's line. I think it was on free school meals. Now, I served under a lot of whips and I observed the conservative whips very closely, particularly Mrs. Thatcher's Svengali, uh, whose name currently escapes me, was something obscure and exotic, quixotic, like Tristan Garrel Jones with a hyphen in between. I studied the efforts, the movements of these people very closely. But of course, uh, for much of that nearly 30 years, I was a Labour MP. So I served under Sergeant Majorly Whips, who did indeed threaten to stand on your toes to uh, give you one in the, uh, the Rollocks, uh, and who certainly made sure that you never served on any committee that you would like to have served upon, but put you, like me, in exile on parliamentary committees that lasted literally four years, every Tuesday and every Thursday. Four years I sat on the King's Cross Railway Bill. It was a combination of browbeating with the occasional blandishment because they could never get their wicked way with me I never got many blandishments, but I got a lot of browbeating. The Labour chief whip, Nick Brown, who ultimately became a friend of mine, he attended our wedding in Parliament uh, some 10 years ago. But he used to browbeat me daily. Sometimes he was browbeating me for the government. Other times he was browbeating me for Gordon Brown, who he wanted to be the government. Uh, but either way, he bullied me and I never told anybody about it because it would be frankly demeaning to me to tell people that I as a grown man was being bullied by another grown man. I as a member of parliament was being bullied by another member of parliament. Usually I just told him to get on his bike or words to that effect, which is what Billy Rag should have done. And Genghis Khan's mate, the new Labour MP for Bury South. But I've got to tell you the idea that the police should be brought in. The police. What next? The King's forces? Parliament is supposed to be a place uh, that is its own sovereign space. I'll be talking to John McTurner who endured, if that's the word, life under Tony Blair in 10 Downing Street. I'll be asking him about the party culture and how many trestle tables he's eaten sausage rolls off later in the show. But the big news, the most important story, is the one unfolding 
way to the east of us, many thousands of miles from here, to which British men and material are currently being dispatched, having to take the long way round uh, because Germany wants nothing to do with the airlift that's going on from London to Kiev. I refer, of course, to the absolutely imminent Russian invasion of the Ukraine, which has been absolutely imminent since before Christmas and is absolutely imminent tomorrow or next week. Although I saw a Ukrainian general saying today, actually Easter, they thought, would be the optimal time if such a thing were to happen. Our media, which lied to us about Iraq, lied to us about weapons of mass destruction, lied to us about Yugoslavia, lied to us about Afghanistan, lied to us about Libya, lied to us about Syria. The lying liars are lying again. And yet, and yet, there are fools who walk and live among us, who, as a knee jerk, can be dragooned into line with the same old questions. Well, what are we going to do about Putin, about Russia? I always hold myself back from saying, who's we? Who are you that you imagine that with a total armed force that could fit into Villa Park, Aston Villa's football ground, the entire Navy, the entire Air Force, the entire Army could fit comfortably into Villa Park. There are more people on the waiting list for season tickets at Manchester United than you have in your entire armed forces. Russia, on the other hand, is a hypersonic, thermonuclear superpower. And the Russian border is in Russia. You are in Britain. Who gave you the idea that you might have to do something about events taking place thousands of miles away between Russia and one of its neighbors? But the imperial mentality is quite difficult to shake off. There are still people in this country, I see them, even on my Twitter feed, and I thought I'd purged the most stupid from my Twitter feed, but no, even on my Twitter feed, I see fools falling into line with the state-backed propaganda that Russia has somehow done something wrong and must be punished by us, imagine. Well, let me tell you something. Russia is no threat to us. Russia is not threatening us. But we are a threat to Russia, and we are threatening Russia. Our forces are on Russia's borders. Russia's forces are not on our borders and have never been on our borders. As a matter of fact, but for Russia's alliance with us, 
in the Second World War, I'd be talking to you now in German. Although, of course, I wouldn't be, because there would be no such program as this, and no such person like me would be left alive. But far from treasuring, cherishing, even at this distance, that warm memory of the wartime alliance, we have been brought up since 1945 on a steady diet of hatred against Russia. In fact, it now reached the stage where we're told we should love Germany and Japan and hate Russia. That's how Orwellian all of this has become. Russia was accused in the British newspapers this morning of seeking to install pro-Russian ministers in charge of the Ukraine. The absolute reverse of what actually happened in real life in 2014, when a coup took place in Ukraine to overthrow the elected president, burn down the parliament, and sign the MPs being held at gunpoint. New laws that outlawed the Russian language in Ukraine, even though a quarter of all citizens in Ukraine are Russian nationals. Many of them now citizens, as well as nationals. Their ethnicity is Russian. Their language and culture is Russian. But it was suddenly outlawed by a regime installed in a coup paid for, organized, inspired, and armored by the West, which now accuses Russia of conspiring to put pro-Russian ministers into the government in Kiev. Now, what happened to that 25% of the Ukrainian population? Well, they decided that they would not accept this coup. They were quite happy, most of them, with the elected president they already had. And so they declared themselves out with the writ of the coup authorities in Kiev, not the least because those authorities were resting on the militant fighting power of actual Nazis, people who wear swastikas, people who revere Bandera, the wartime Ukrainian nationalist leader who actually massacred Jews. I'm not making any of this up, dear viewer, dear listener. The Russian-speaking people in the east of Ukraine don't want to live under a government which is dependent on the street-fighting power of swastika-wearing, jackboot-stomping followers of the Ukrainian Nazi leader. Now, I don't believe for one single minute that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. 
There's a clue if you're doing the poll. Not for one minute do I believe that Russia wants to take over the basket case, which is Ukraine. The sick man of Europe, which is about, according to the financial newspapers and journalists in Ukraine itself, about to default upon its debt. Who would want to take over Ukraine? Certainly not the European Union and not Russia either. But what they may very well happen, and maybe this week, unless talks on Monday again between Blinken and Lavrov can avert it, what may very well happen is that Ukraine invades the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, where the people don't recognize the authority of Kiev and were granted in a agreement signed by the government in Kiev at Minsk that they would have autonomy. The Ukrainian forces now pumped full of Western weaponry may very well try to take advantage of this moment to attack the 25% of the Ukrainian population that doesn't want anything to do with them. And if that happens, then all bets are off because Russia clearly will not stand by and watch its compatriots slaughtered by the Ukrainian forces, their Azov Nazi battalions using Western weapons to do their dirty work. So the war might be coming yet. What will NATO do about it? Nothing. NATO will not fight to defend Ukraine. It will not go to war with Russia because it would be a very short war, a war that would end in a defeat more ignominious even than the defeat of the NATO forces who recently scuttled out in the middle of the night from Afghanistan, chased by men on bicycles, wearing sandals and carrying carbines. Russia ain't no Afghanistan. Russia ain't no Syria. Russia ain't no Iraq. The Russian army can really fight. Don't test them. It's the mother of all talk shows. Tough questions are the most powerful weapon we have. As long as you have questions, we'll keep asking. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Trapped in mainstream media? Join the revolution with mother of all talk shows. Has been instrumental in making brain and heart of people stronger, like kettlebell for mind. Don't be brainwashed, CC, an open mind to new way of thinking. If you don't know how, George will teach you. If you won't learn, he 
will make you. <laughs> Speak to Comrade Galloway if you think you're hard enough on the model of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Now you'll probably want to have your say. If so, here are the numbers. If you're in the UK, remember it's absolutely free to call the show. It's 0808196552. And if you're in the United States or Canada, and again, it's absolutely free to call the show. It's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. Or you can email the show anytime at onair at moats.tv. Well, the poll has taken off, my goodness, a thousand votes in 20 minutes. Will there be war over Ukraine between NATO and Russia? A, yes, 27%. B, no, 73%. That's on Twitter. On YouTube, it's yes, 27%, identical. No, 73%, identical. And on Telegram, it's yes, 24%, no, 76%. So you can vote on any of those platforms, on my Twitter account, on my YouTube, and do subscribe if you visit it, and on my Telegram. If you're watching us on Facebook, by the way, just to avoid the manipulations of Mr. Al G. Rhythm, please share now with every one of your friends your contacts on Facebook so that we can get the maximum number. Well over half a million people watched last week's show. In fact, on my Wednesday night broadcast, which uh, was for uh, the political party that I lead, not for moats, and therefore was kind of uncut, it's only three days, and 257,000 people have watched the speech I made on all my platforms last Wednesday night. And I'll be doing that every Wednesday night from now on at 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Now, uh, John McTernan is uh, an old friend of mine. He's uh, politically poles apart from me, uh, but I don't believe in letting politics dictate uh, whether I'm friends with someone or not. And so note to those that have been bombarding me with demands uh, that I don't platform John McTernan. I'm sure many of his friends were bombarding him with the demand uh, that he should not be appearing on my show. But that's not how he and I do things. I wanted to speak to John McTernan for the obvious reason. He worked in Downing Street at the right hand of a British Prime Minister, in this case, Tony Blair. He also worked in Australia at the right hand of an Australian Prime Minister. So he knows a thing or two about life in Downing Street, and he knows a thing or two about how the political system works. I have no idea what attitude he takes to the knuckle-crunching of whips. I certainly was never aware of him asking the whips to give me an easier time of it when he and I were in the same orbit together. I've no idea whether he thinks 
Sue Gray is going to bring the British Prime Minister down this week, or that it's even remotely credible that an absolutely unknown person now holds the future of Britain, ink in her hands. But she does. So let me go now uh, to the one and only John McTernan. John, thanks very much for uh, joining me. I'll be interviewing your, uh, your friend, uh, uh, Keir Starmer, later. Uh, but I'm grateful to you for the chance to interview you. You're a film man like myself, so you'll understand the reference. Were you shocked, shocked, I tell you, to discover that whips are uh, sometimes unpleasant uh, to the flock that they are asked to keep in order? I was shocked that the whips officer are deciding to use public money to threaten MPs. There's always been threats, threats around promotions, threats around deselections, threats which are party business, threats around little black books and stories. But this government tries to bribe voters with their own money, bribing taxpayers with their own money, giving money to the red wall seats that have been won by the Tories. They're, they're really explicit about it. They say vote for a Tory mayor and you will get a free port. And now what they're doing is apparently they're telling MPs you'll not get your school, you won't get your hospital upgrade, you won't get this unless you do what we want. And that is actually corruption. It is a breach of parliamentary privilege. I'm not surprised the Metropolitan Police are investigating. Um, and I am surprised they have just let themselves go this far because you know how easily scared other MPs are. You don't need to go that far with them. Um, so why, why break the law when you don't have to? Are you sure they did? Have you seen any evidence, John? I haven't, but I have heard what Christian Wakeford said, that he was, to that he was told explicitly by the then Secretary of State for Education, and I've heard Chris Bryant, who's in charge of the standards processes in um, Parliament, I'm told, you know, I've heard him say a dozen Tories have spoken to him. So I think he's taking it seriously and going to be investigating as a, uh, in terms of the Commons, a breach of Commons privilege. So, and it does feel to me in character with them. If they're willing to say explicitly to voters, vote for us and you get pork, I'm certain that behind the scenes they go to the MPs. We promised your voters this pork. You promised it. We'll take it away from you unless you behave. Isn't pork, pork battling, the very stuff of politics? It hasn't been until now. Um, every allocation of government funding, even under the Cameron government, uh, was by formula. A formula that's published, and um, the the town's fund, which gave no money to Barnsley, but gave money to Rishi Sunak's Richmond, is possibly the most obvious one. And this, the um, the head of the department, when he was interviewed by MPs, said, "Well, deprivation wasn't actually one of the things we considered. We considered um, travel to work area and transport links. So Richmond, being rural." had fewer buses than Barnsley being urban, and so therefore got the money. So there was, there was uh, some fiddling at the edges, which even the civil service were getting embarrassed about trying to justify. Uh, you mentioned uh, Drakeford, is it, the uh, Bury South uh, MP. Uh, he did say that, but he also said to his voters he was a Tory uh, just two years ago, and now it turns out he isn't. Uh, don't you think he should step down and 
uh, fight a by-election in his constituency? I think it would be hilarious if he did, because the swing to Labour would be massive, because um, he would be imposed by the NEC by-election panel, so he'd be the Labour candidate. But, look, I think, I think in the end, electors choose MPs um, to represent them, and they choose, they, they, you know, they vote for them with their judgment. Christian Wakeford has decided he's not in the interest of Barry South to, for there to be a continuation of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a Tory government. I mean, I think it probably is, as your caller said, is in the interest of the, um, the Labour Party uh, for Boris Johnson to stay as long as possible as Prime Minister. Uh, but Christian Wakeford was obviously trying to pull the last, you know, the last wooden piece out of the Jenga tower to, to make the whole thing collapse. Um, and I feel... Look, we don't have a tradition in this country of automatic by-elections, and I think that would give an amazing power, wouldn't it, to the whips? If you said that when you were no longer in the parliamentary party that you were elected for, you had to have a by-election, the whips could just pull the, take the whip away from you and there'd be an automatic by-election. So I think, again, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, we'll come back to how likely the whole thing falling uh, is likely to be. But I wanted to get your... Uh, not unique, of course, there have been many uh, people have worked in Downing Street, but uniquely on this show, uh, you, you didn't live in Downing Street, but you, you worked all the hours that God sent uh, there. How different from the Downing Street you worked in is the Downing Street you now catch glimpses of in Partygate? Well, we, we didn't have wine fridges or beer fridges under our under our desks. We didn't drink in the garden. I think I was in the garden three times, uh, once for the leaving party, once for a summer party, and once for a photograph uh, with the Prime Minister. Um, and the one time I do remember drunkenness in the, in the gardens was when in the England Test cricket team uh, came to celebrate their great victory. And they were absolutely plastered, having had a night of drinking. They had to be steered off the wall uh, on the way out to the, the garden. Uh, we had to go out for extra beer for them, uh, and they played on Leo's play equipment. But it was such a rarity. I had an office which looked onto the garden. I would not have dared to walk out into the garden. The garden doesn't belong to uh, the office. The garden belongs to the Prime Minister and his flat, and, of course, um, shared with Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, who has apparently not seen anything going on in Number 10 over this period. But this culture that they've got of breaking rules, of drinking, of partying. Um, I mean, I'm a Republican, but I have to say I was scunnered by the story of them partying the night before uh, Prince Philip's funeral, um, particularly when you hear that the Queen herself said she would not wish to have any lifting of the rules for herself. And so this kind of contempt for everybody. Uh, he wasn't, are, to be fair, John, the Prime Minister wasn't there. He was recuperating in checkers at that time. No, but he said, but the, clearly the culture was we can party when we want. Uh, and I think, I know, I know I'm sure that he will try and say, uh, put all the, the worst things we'll say were done when he wasn't there. Uh, but, you know, I, it beggars belief that he walked out to people drinking uh, and eating crisps and peanuts and sausage rolls from the local Tesco and thought he was going to a work event, stayed there for 25 minutes. It's, um, I mean, it, the one thing all voters know about Boris Johnson is he knows how to party. So a man who knows how to party must recognise a party. No, I agree. Uh, it's, uh, I, mean, I mean, it all reads to me as a non-drinker 
Uh, it's like a, a great Gatsby chapter. Uh, uh, these uh, born-to-rule uh, individuals uh, carousing at the public expense uh, on public uh, property. If I was running Downing Street, it would be an alcohol-free zone, as you know. But uh, the, the uh, hypocrisy that is sensed by some uh, is that uh, other political parties were also drinking on public property, also in uh, close proximity to uh, their fellows, at the very same time during lockdown. And who? I don't, I'm not sure there were people doing that. That was, he, he was doing, he was, he was actually working uh, with an MP and had a beer with his meal, all of which was actually within the rules. You're sure? Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. Let's move on then. Uh, your loyalty is admirable. You're playing with a straight bat. So let me ask you with a straight bat. Do you really think that the future of this country is going to be decided this week by a woman that I personally had never heard of before, a Ms. Sue Gray? Is that right? The future of the country, the future of the Prime Minister, is rightly in the hands of the House of Commons and in the hands of the, rule, the majority party in the House of Commons, the Conservative Party. Um, I fully expect Sue Gray, who I worked with when I was a number 10 and who's an honourable and decent civil servant, to actually do the most damning thing she could do, not draw a judgement uh, on Boris Johnson, but lay out the facts. Just who did what and when, who said what and when, and against those two timelines have another timeline, which is what were the rules in force in the country at the time. And in a place like this, you don't need to lead uh, the jury. You don't need to gild the lily. The facts, I believe, will be damning in themselves. And it will be a judgment on the Conservative Party uh, if the MPs decide, for all the reasons they're running around with at the moment, not to take action against a Prime Minister who will be shown to have broken the rules. And there'll be lots of attempts to get this on a technicality, but in the end, you know, the thing that should be said of a Prime Minister is the buck stops with the Prime Minister. Um, and we have a Prime Minister at the moment who wants the buck to stop with anybody apart from him. Um, and the question is, will, you know, he sacrificed many other people's careers to the advancement of his. Is he going to be allowed by the Tory party, sacrifice the Tory party to his career? What's your instinct then? Uh, the Tories, as we both know, uh, have a real taste for uh, regicide. Uh, they have, uh, no, that's not the right phrase, uh, fratricide. They have, uh, they have slaughtered leader after leader after leader, even in our time in politics. Are they going to get rid of him? The issue is they have a cause dethroning the leader, but they don't have a candidate. And it's very difficult uh, to mobilize. You know, normally if you're assaulted by, if there's a leadership challenge and you're in the leadership, you practice divide and rule. In this case, the Tories don't have to do divide and rule. Um, the number 10 don't have to do divide and rule. The Tory party is divided. Um, and it's, I think the thing which would get rid of the Prime Minister is if 
a leadership candidate like uh, the Foreign Secretary or the Chancellor resigned and went to the backbench, that would be a challenge. And I've, I've, I've thought all the way through this, you see a total lack of nerve. You need, you saw it with, you know, David Miliband could be Prime Minister today had he had the steel to take out Gordon Brown. He didn't. You have to, of all, you've got to have all the political characteristics that make you a great leader, but the one you have to absolutely have is the willingness to do the deed, to strike. And the Tories are waiting for somebody else to, the Tory leadership candidates are waiting for someone else to do it. Um, and that is exactly what Boris Johnson wants. He is a man, a chancellor, who's always hoped that somebody will turn up. And he'll play for time, given time. And I just feel they will give him time. And I feel that he will... Um, I feel that he will be willing now. To, I wrote a speech uh, that I thought he should have made when he had made his first apology, that he needs to abase himself. He needs to go f further than he's ever gone so far that people go, no, you can't take it all on yourself, Prime Minister. That's not all you. And then he should say, I have let down the voters and I've let down the country I love. And he should wrap himself in the flag. Um, and then he should go and spend money. He should just, like, he's not going to stay Prime Minister unless he changes the political agenda and he should be spending money. I think, I, I listened to your uh, your opening monologue, I think it's a disgrace the size of our British Armed Forces. Put aside what you were talking about, the smallness of them is disgraceful. He should spend money on that. He should spend money on bus, from buses to the army. He should actually be spending money and should face down Rishi Sunak. And if Rishi won't spend that money, he should say, well, I've exposed you for what you are, a man who wants my job. Now have the have the balls to come for me, and so I think he needs to pivot. He needs to apologise, abase himself, then pivot into action, then burn up the road. Uh, but it's not clear that he wants to follow through on that because he seems to be wanting to placate his crazy right wingers uh, in his party. So he doesn't want to spend money, even though that's his instinct. And so I think he's torn in this way. I think he gets through this week because I think they've got this fantasy that Tories have got that they'll let the local elections be bad on his watch. It's like this is seeping out to be all about the Tory brand. And there's a point where you can't stop that. And uh, I think they may have passed it already, but I think they may keep on testing that. I said lastly, but forgive me, uh, it occurs to me that I should ask you. Uh, Dominic Cummings was, in a way, an equivalent uh, of yours in terms of uh, position. He was very close to the Prime Minister, as you were yourself. Um, he was dumped out unceremoniously with a cardboard box full of damning, one presumes, damning uh, evidence. That was exceedingly foolish of Boris Johnson to dump uh, Cummings for, it said, his then girlfriend, now wife, uh, Mrs. Johnson. Don't you think that was really stupid politics? In politics, you should do what's in your own interest, not in the interest of your spouse. Um, you need to be really hard-hearted and hard-headed. And what should have been done was a job should have been created for Dominic Cummings to review the MOD, to set up the, uh, the research agency he wanted based on the American's DARPA defense uh, research agency, to put him in charge of GCHQ, do something where he was occupied but was really subject to an NDA and wasn't going to leak against you. It was always obvious what Dominic Cummings would do if he was pushed out. And it's got all, it has got all of the um, uh, hallmarks of a spiteful, badly thought through decision forced upon uh, Boris or enjoined by Boris 
but but started not by Boris himself because you know you need to think don't put the people who know all about you out in the cold and don't put people who've already you know what was Dominic, Dominic Cummings brought down Cameron with the Brexit referendum, brought down Theresa May using Boris Johnson. So he's going for his hat trick. <laughs> and, you know, after this, does he get to keep it? <laughs> John McDermott, thanks for joining us on the mother of all much. talk shows. Much obliged to you. Will there be war over Ukraine between NATO and Russia? Yes, 25%. No, 75%. That's on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube it's yes, 26%, no, 74%. And on Telegram, it's yes, 24%, no, 76%. Lots and lots of you have voted, but you've still got, well, more than an hour to get your opinion registered. One man who knows the area uh, better than anyone else on the show tonight, including me, is Dean O'Brien who is a freelance correspondent. He was on the show not so long ago. We didn't expect Dean to be back quite so quickly. But as we might be on the eve of a devastating war, we thought we'd better bring him back. Dean, thanks for joining us again on the mother of all talk shows. How optimistic, pessimistic are you about the... Uh, possibilities of war? Uh, It's a tough one, George, to be honest, because obviously what we're seeing is we're seeing America, yet again, shipping in lots of military aid. The British joining them this week as well, sending in more military aid. Uh, This isn't what it needs. Again, it needs discussion, it needs talk. They should be putting together a platform of the leaders from Ukraine, from the separatist republics to sit and talk, not sending more military aid over there. Well, uh, it was already agreed in the Minsk agreement uh, that uh, the government in Kiev would negotiate with the autonomous areas, uh, formalising their autonomy. Uh, What progress has been made on that? None. President Zelensky has uh, refused time and time again to speak to the leaders. So the, the, the top and bottom of it is, whilst President Zelensky is in power in Ukraine, the war will continue. There'll be no peace. And do you attribute the current crisis to him being in the presidency or uh, would any of the Ukrainian nationalist leaders uh, be the same? Well, this is the problem that I've had before, George, because what happens is when Ukraine get a change of president, it's, um, it's the same goods, just packaged differently. One oligarch replaces another. Um, what they need is a, a totally different president, somebody with a different political perspective as well. Somebody that takes into account the massive Russian population that exists in Ukraine. This, this conflict is not black and white. There are so many different angles to it. And one of them is the huge Russian peace-speaking population that live in Ukraine. You've got many people there whose um, mothers are Ukrainian, fathers are Russian. You've got that as well. So people are uh, half and half, basically. So it's not as as clear-cut as Western media would have you believe that Russians are in Ukraine. Well, of course, according to the British newspapers this morning, uh, Russia has already picked the next government. Uh, in Kiev, and they actually named several people, none of whom I think are even in Ukraine, 
who have been handpicked by Moscow uh, to be the government in Kiev. How credible was that? It's not credible. It's just a nonsense, isn't it? They're just really clutching at straws now. It stinks of desperation. Now, you, you know, you say it's uh, complex, and of course it is, uh, but I don't believe that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Who'd want to take over Ukraine? In the financial press this very day, uh, it's said that Ukraine is about to, uh, ab about to renege on its uh, debt. It's unable to pay. Uh, it's going to go effectively bankrupt. Uh, it's uh, a country that the European Union wouldn't touch with a barge pole. So why would Russia want to take over Ukraine? So I don't believe that Russia is going to invade Ukraine, but I do think there's a real possibility of Ukraine invading the hitherto autonomous areas. Is that the way this thing might start? Yes. I mean, we've seen uh, the report come in today how uh, a sabotage unit entered the, the Lugansk People's Republic uh, yesterday. They've captured um, a soldier. So they, they, they went across the contact line, um, captured a soldier who they've, again, taken prisoner. Um, they've done this. Uh, they've done one a month for the past four months where they've gone in, captured um, um, a serving officer of the Lugansk People's Republic and took them back. So they are trying to kick something off to provoke the conflict, and then they'll just use that as an excuse. What's the relative military balance? Uh, as I understand it, the armed forces of these, uh, these unrecognized people's republic, uh, republics are workers, miners and factory workers and so on. They'd be up against a professional army in the form of the Ukrainian army. Of course, very few have, um, have got full military experience. I mean, obviously, in the early days, many of these may have been Ukrainian servicemen, but, you know, but for, for national service, that kind of thing. But the majority of these fighters came from normal professional jobs. They left their wives, families. They are, from a lot of them, from the, the mining community, which Donetsk is famous for. They've worked in steel factories. So, yeah, and... Nobody will deny that they are heavily outnumbered by the Ukrainian army. So if the Ukrainian army did seek to retake this territory, although God knows what they imagine would happen after that, uh, yeah. if the, uh, the miners and the steel workers stand and fight, there could be a slaughter. Uh, Russia could not be... Uh, could not turn a, a, a Nelson's eye to that, could they? No, they can't. And you, you, you're right on the money there. It would be a slaughter. But we have to take into account as well, the people in these um, Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, many are Russian passport holders now. So technically they are Russian citizens and Vladimir Putin is well within his rights to go in and defend those citizens should they come under attack. So I think the, the last I heard it was 350,000 there are Russian passport holders. So if Ukrainian forces do go in, they, they can't expect Russian forces to go in to protect their population. It's as simple as that. So uh, we could very well have a war without Russia invading Ukraine, at least uh, not before the Ukraine had invaded and started killing Russian citizens in eastern Ukraine. 
Exactly. I mean, we saw out this week in, uh, I don't know if you saw what I uh, posted earlier this week in Lviv, in Western Ukraine, uh, where they've been uh, daubing posters over shops that have got signs in Russian or they speak Russian in the shops. The nationalists have been going there and it's very reminiscent of 1930s Germany. They've been putting the posters on there telling people to boycott the shops, to not go there. If you do go in the shops, you're being physically abused and verbally abused. Um, replace them posters with a yellow star. You could be anywhere. Well, of course, the, uh, not all of the Ukrainian nationalists are fascists, of course, but no one can deny, uh, certainly not the Israeli embassy in Kiev, which is regularly complaining about them. Uh, you could not deny that the, the anti-Semitic hordes that followed Bandera uh, has its descendant in the Azov Battalion, uh, which is now a part of the official Ukrainian army. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember back in 2018, when I was in government-controlled Ukraine, I made a point of going down to the um, Azov Battalion headquarters in Mariupol um, just to have a look around, and people there... Just outside the front of the uh, the building, there's like a sort of like a coffee shop, and the Azov Battalion guys gather there, openly with uh, swastika tattoos, with wolf's hook, um, odal rune, similar na Nazi symbols from from those times, and it's it's just socially accepted there. Yeah, I mean, uh, giving Hitler salutes is uh, is uh, a no no in almost every part of the world, but it's de rigueur down on the street in Ukraine amongst these kind of people. Of course it is. I mean, and what, what surprises me, if you were America or the UK, how can you supply arms to, to a country like this where Nazi glorification is just the norm? It is the norm. It doesn't shock me. People send me pictures and videos all the time, and it just, it's, I've, I've become kind of like desensitized to it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes, uh, perhaps the British and American people don't know. Well, that's true. I mean, we try and share as much as we can on social media, but um, you, you can only do so much. They need to wake up, really. I'm also puzzled as to why Western media, they're, they're very quick to put Putin this, Putin that on the cover of the paper. Why not look at the glorification of Nazism in Ukraine? Well, I've never seen that in any mainstream media, though every foreign correspondent for... Every mainstream uh, media outfit in Britain 
obviously knows what you are saying to be true. Uh, they know it, but they do not report it. Uh, therefore, they are willfully covering up the fact that we are sending weapons and lethal aid to people, a part of whose forces are goose-stepping, sieg-heiling, swastika-wearing Nazis. You couldn't exactly. make it up, Dean. Thanks very much for joining us. Might have I to wouldn't. have you next week as well if it all kicks off, if the balloon goes up. Thanks for uh, joining us. Mohammed's in Reading. Go ahead, Mohammed. Assalamu alaikum, George. How are you? Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. MashaAllah, George. Yeah. How have you been keeping? By the grace of God, good, Mohammed. Would you want to talk about Russia? Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be, it might, I don't want the conversation to go sour between us, George, and obviously um, I'm not out there to get you, it's nothing personal against you, um, it's just, you, you know, in your monologue you mentioned Russia, you mentioned Syria, and I just question, does it not go against your integrity to be a supporter of the Russian government and also be a friend of the Syrian people? Uh, au contraire, uh, if it wasn't for the Russian government and its armed forces, the Syrian people would now be ruled by the black flags of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Maybe that's what's no, disappointed you, no, Mohammed. No, it's not, it's not one evil or another evil, George. I'm against both evils. In fact, the cluster munition and barrel bombs that have killed lots of children and innocent civilians, displaced buildings, displaced hospitals, displaced schools, um, you're, you're saying that's something good, are you? Uh, no, uh, I'm saying that if Al-Qaeda and ISIS, backed by uh, people who think like them uh, around the world, including here in Britain, maybe even, who knows, in Reading, uh, and the uh, satrapies of the Persian mm -hmm. Gulf, uh, coughing up the money to pay for it, backed by Britain and the United States, if they had not launched the murderous uh, sectarian war why, why, to why, destroy George, George, Syria, George. then none of that would have happened. Last word. George, I, Go ahead, Mohammed. No, no, it's not like, it's, it really isn't the last word, George, because why you... No, I'm giving you, you the you last know, word. Don't be rude. I've got to press no, on. I'm giving you the last word. Don't look a no, gift horse. What, Don't look a gift horse George, in the mouth. If you want to cooperate against the Syrian people in sinning aggression and use Al-Qaeda or whatever you're using as a scapegoat, then that's your own, you know, brainwashed... Um, deluded perception, George. You know, okay, thanks for that. Thanks for that, Mohammed. Richard is in Derbyshire. Go ahead, Richard. Hi, George. Yeah, I just wondered what your thoughts were on why there's so much bias around, uh, you know, around you know, what's been happening in Russia, mm. and especially the coup. Yeah. Um, you know, first time around, when you think, you know, I mean, it's pretty disgraceful, really, you know, the tactics yeah, and, that, and you know, nobody knows Nobody knows I mean, about it, uh, Richard, because yeah, our yeah. media have deliberately distorted it. For example, all these papers this morning talking about what Russia was plotting to put in charge of uh, uh, the Ukrainian government is actually yeah. total projection. That's yeah, what Britain yeah, and yeah. America and the European Union actually did <clears throat> in 2014. So, but what, what, what do you think the reason for that is? I mean, is it some kind of globalist agenda because Russia don't sow the line? You know, yeah, around, I think it is. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, reference the call just before you. Uh, the, uh, for some unfathomable reason, 
uh, Britain and the United States wanted uh, the black flags of ISIS and al-Qaeda to be fluttering in Damascus, and Russia stopped them from doing so. Russia, yeah. and in the future China, will stop, will block uh, any further uh, uh, attempts to invade and overthrow uh, governments that they don't like, particularly in Iran. Uh, there's now, right now, a naval exercise going on between the navies of Iran, China, and Russia. The world is yeah. changing, Richard, and uh, mm. whilst there's no ideological issue here, and that's why I think Western powers have made a very serious error in so alienating Russia and so pushing yeah. it in the direction of China. Uh, Russia is a capitalist country, just yeah. like us. I mean, it's not I mean, a socialist share, country. Uh, it's yeah, not a, a communist of, um, country. The values of, uh, of, of the same people here, don't they? Yeah, it's a Christian, capitalist, European country. But they yeah. refused to allow it to join the family of Christian, capitalist, European countries. They refused yeah. because Russia yeah. is too big, too important, too strong to be allowed in the door through the architecture that we have uh, and, and, and would not accept orders. The thing they hate about Putin, Putin's not a communist, he's not a socialist. He's, he believes in the same system as they do, but he demands respect for himself and for Russia. And that's what they're not prepared to afford. They're not prepared he's, to pay well, that he, respect. He's, he's not willing to give up power to globalist you know, corporations. He's not he? willing to sacrifice Russia's uh, national interests. Yeltsin was. Yeah. Yeltsin was lying drunk on the floor, and we were all picking his pockets. But yeah. Putin has lifted Russia back onto its feet, and that's what they can't bear. Yeah. Richard, yeah. thanks for the call. Yeah. Lee is in Harrow. Go ahead, Lee. Hi, George. Listen, uh, firstly, I, I was going to talk to you about Russia, but the caller before the last one, Mohammed. Yeah, he, he was really heavy manners, yeah. Oh, do you know what? I, I don't understand how these people, and, and, and I see a lot of them, and I'm sure you've encountered a lot of them. I have, unfortunately. Iraq yeah. Was, yeah, Iraq was illegal. The Western media lied to us about everything apart from Syria. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's got to be Syria. Russia shouldn't have gone in. So what's the alternative? You know, and it's just like they want bloodshed. They want to do sectarian nonsense. Well, it's they, sectarian. I, I I, that's the S word, I'm afraid. This, many of the same people who carried me on their shoulders, calling me a hero for my role in opposing the Anglo-American invasion and destruction of Iraq, now hate me because I will not support the same Anglo-American invasion and destruction of Syria. Go figure. George, do you know what? You have been on the right side of history for Syria, completely, 100%. And I don't understand people like Mohammed, who calls mm. up, and I hope he's listening, mm. who just don't see logic. You can show it to them in black and white on yeah, paper. I, I do. I, I, I try, but uh, they're strangely <laughs> uh, impervious to it. Uh, the, the, the facts are, uh, there's only one reason 
why you could make me a hero for standing by Iraq, but a villain for standing by Syria, and that is a sectarian one. Of course, that, it's completely that, sectarian. It's even though, pumping uh, money in. Yeah, even though, Lee, the army of Syria, which has defeated ISIS and al-Qaeda... Is majority Sunni. Yeah, and the alphabet soup of uh, Islamist extremism, that army is a Sunni army. 80% of the soldiers in the Syrian army are Sunni Muslims. So what they then say, Lee, is, well, they're the wrong kind of Sunnis. Well, do you know, um, just before I go on to Russia, somebody once tried to, somebody like Mohammed, tried to give me their version of events, this sectarianism nonsense. So I said, you've been to Mecca, right? And he said, yeah. I said, so when you stand shoulder to shoulder and pray to the same God, after you've prayed, you turn around to the guy next to you and ask him if he's a Shia or a Sunni. And the guy was so offended that I'd asked that. And I said, give me an answer. He didn't have an answer because they're brainwashed. Uh, I can't believe you actually tolerated Muhammad and, uh, for as long. I, I honestly, I called up straight away and said I need to get yeah, on. Yeah, well, I, I was I, gonna... I, it's not the first time I've uh, I come up uh, against him. Anyway, last point to you, Lee. Yeah, so um, I want to ask you, I think Putin must be laughing his head off Looking at Partygate, as soon as this Russia-Ukraine thing came in the press, I thought it's a distraction technique. What do you think Putin is thinking right now, looking at us, how desperate we are? I don't think he thinks about Britain very much. It's one of the uh, enduring fantasies of the British. I saw somebody <laughs> called Liz Truss, uh, who apparently is our foreign secretary, <laughs> uh, 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 threatening, she was actually threatening Putin today. She threatened him. Now, first of all, I doubt if Putin even knows who she is, and I doubt if he gives a minute's thought uh, to the British armed forces who could, as I said earlier, comfortably fit into Villa Park to watch Aston Villa play. Uh, Russia is a hypersonically armed nuclear superpower. It could turn the entire island of Britain into ash and everyone in it in an instant. So why are we sailing all the way to Russia to provoke an adversary that could swat us like a fly? Why? It's this nonsense detraction technique of we are patriotic, let's turn. That's what the news is trying to be about instead of party gay. I firmly believe that. I don't think they'll do anything once they get there because they know Russia's a superpower. And do you know what? If a superpower, if, okay, so when you look at India, for example, India, Britain, trade, trade deals, you know, they pander to each other. That's okay. But China, Russia, they don't, so they're the enemy. They don't succumb to us. They don't do what the West tells them to do. And that's all it is, really. You're right, Lee, uh, in Harrow. Thank you very much uh, indeed. Let's be joined by the one and only, remember her name, my colleague from the United States, Rachel Blevins. Rachel, welcome back. It's uh, wonderful, as always, to see you. Well, by this time next week, uh, your country might be at war with Russia, and we might be looking at an all-out war on the European mm -hmm. continent. Do the American people know that? Yeah, I think they look at it and they realize the fact that this is a region of the world that isn't close to theirs and they've decided in many ways not to care about it. And it's interesting to see 
how so much of the media coverage of this situation, of course, it's no surprise that it has been beating those war drums, calling for an increase in conflict, but at the same time, leaving out the facts surrounding the situation. You know, we look at the fact that just a few weeks ago, it was Russia presenting a security fact presenting a security pact rather calling for a decrease in escalations calling for an agreement with the u.s and with nato and the united states response to that was to say no we don't want to be controlled by nato and instead what we've seen is we've seen the biden administration ramping up this rhetoric we saw you know just this week the fact that you know the biden administration shipped over 200,000 pounds of i guess what they are now referring to as lethal aid over to Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Lethal aid. Right. This is almost right. an oxymoron. Exactly. It's like the buzzword of the moment. And of course, this is something that was signed off on previously by the Biden administration. But then at the same time, you know, when we had this story that came out from the UK claiming that they knew of a plot from Russia to invade Ukraine and to take over their government and overthrow their leaders, the US hasn't even really questioned that. They've just kind of nodded along and been like, yep, that goes with exactly what yeah. we've been saying. It's a new that- steel dossier. We'll probably yeah, find that Steele wrote it. I at this point, yeah. And you know, it was funny because you know it's bad when even the Guardian, when they were reporting on this, actually had to admit that there were hardly any details in this report of exactly how Russia was supposed to carry out this government overthrow. Like they actually had to admit that. Therefore, you know that it is a rough situation, not to mention the fact that we've got the UK out here claiming that. Russia's quote-unquote pro-Russian former Ukrainian politicians they want to be in power are people who are actually sanctioned by Russia. I mean, if you really take the time to look at the facts of this, it makes no sense at all. However, when the U.S. media takes it, what they do with it is they, you know, just kind of breeze over those facts and instead look at the headline, which they know will grab viewer attention, and instead they just tell you, well, see, we've got another country telling you that Russia's planning to invade and overthrow, and therefore the U.S. needs to get even more involved in yet another conflict. Well, this is what troubles me most, Rachel. Uh, The lying liars are lying again. Uh, through the same mouthpieces, the same television stations, the same newspapers, oftentimes this very same commentators. The people that said we must invade Iraq because it has weapons of mass destruction. The people who said Gaddafi had given his army Viagra and sent them out on a campaign of mass rape. Uh, The same people who told us Uh, that uh, Syria and the world would be better off if Al-Qaeda and ISIS were in control of Damascus uh, on the the Mediterranean, in Syria. Uh, The same people who've lied over and over again and who are widely regarded as liars by their own people on a day-to-day basis. Most people in America think their government is lying to them. Most people in Britain think their government is habitually lying to them. But when it comes to these big international issues of war and peace, it seems that when the drums start beating, everyone falls into line again. 
Yeah, you were exactly right. And on top of that, the majority of Americans also don't trust the media. And we see survey after survey of people who say that, you know, the trust in the media has come to a historic low. And yet at the same time, when you've got those mainstream media talking heads sitting there telling you, hey, Russia's about to invade, we have to step in and fight for the freedoms of the Ukrainian people, whether they want that quote unquote help or not, all of a sudden the American people think, Oh, okay, we need to trust our politicians and our media once again and hop on board. I mean, it makes no sense. And it also comes back around to the fact that, you know, 20 years after the so-called war on terror, as we've seen, as you predicted, it was an absolute failure. And the cost of that war was so incredibly high, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of civilian casualties, in terms of how much this country wasted to go and to destroy other countries on the other side of the world. And it, it makes no sense to me that we're now sitting here looking at a direct confrontation with Russia and actually debating as to whether or not that's something that the United States should be considering, while at the same time we also have to remember that Russia is not the country that is provoking this escalation here. Russia is the country that has consistently sat there and said, not only do we not have plans to invade, but please show us what you think that we have planned. Show us the information that you are citing when you come forward and you say these US intelligence officials claim that there's going to be some kind of invasion. For as long as we have that, for as long as we have a country that is sitting there and saying, look, we don't want war in our backyard. That's something that the American people should be paying attention to because it brings us back to the fact that the United States is on the exact same war path, except this time around they're going up against a nuclear power. And in that kind of situation, no one wins. Well, quite. Uh, the, the tropes roll out. And I know that they, uh, they uh, hit home because... Uh, a close friend of mine used their language to me just the other day. Uh, Russia is massing 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, uh, he said. But the Ukrainians have massed 125,000 forces on the Russian border. But nobody ever uses that figure. There are more Ukrainian soldiers on the Russian border than there are Russian soldiers on the Ukrainian border. But you repeat these war tropes and they definitely hit the mark. I now know that from my survey of social media uh, and the rest, uh, that there are people who are asking me the same questions that they asked about Iraq before the war. Well, what should we do about Saddam Hussein? What should we do about Vladimir Putin, about Russia, uh, about Ukraine, and so on? First of all, if you do anything, you will lose. But the yeah. entire world may be enveloped in a nuclear confrontation. Because, look, of course, there'll be no immediate use of uh, nuclear weapons. But if, say, my thesis, the Ukrainians invade the autonomous republics and begin slaughtering Russian nationals and Russian citizens, then Russia will undoubtedly enter the country. Then there'll be a war between Russia and a part of the Ukraine. Who's going to say, with their hand on their heart, that that will not spread to the neighboring countries? 
Who's going to say that China will not take advantage of that situation to take action in the Straits of Taiwan? Who's therefore going to say that this will not all spiral into an all-enveloping war? Do people, are people just going to sleepwalk into that? In our country, yes. I'm presuming in your country also. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a really good point to talk about sort of that domino effect that we're facing here. And I also think it's important to talk about what if this were what if this situation were flipped around? Because it's interesting how people always want to talk about Russian troops on Ukraine's border, yet they don't want to talk about the fact that these are troops in Russia. They also don't want to talk about the fact that if this situation were reversed and let's say that Russia had poured $2.7 billion worth of quote-unquote lethal aid into Canada, and we saw troops lining up on the U.S. northern border, you know that the United States would be worried about it. I mean, to sit there, then we could have that conversation and say, well, what should we do? Because it would be something involving our country. But this idea that the United States needs to continue to assert itself all around the world, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Taiwan, and needs to, you know, really go up against these other larger countries. I mean, I don't think that the average citizen, especially here in the United States, realizes the cost that could come with that or realizes the fact that, yeah, we can sit here all day long and talk about how the United States has the largest military budget in the world and the most advanced military, but that doesn't mean that we should be going up against a country like Russia, like China, or like the two of them combined, because at the end of the day, those politicians will sit there and they will call for that conflict, but it's not their sons and daughters who are going off to fight and to die in that war. And that's something that I really hope that people will grasp at least before it's too late. Now, the elephant sitting in the room or the donkey uh, sitting in the room uh, is Joe Biden. Uh, he's had a very bad week. I follow, uh, like you do, uh, the clips of him speaking, his press conferences and so on. He's really reaching uh, a stage which must be uh, medically critical. He is incapable of carrying out his role as the commander-in-chief. If I'm right about that, who is calling the shots? Who is the commander-in-chief? Who is making these decisions? I don't believe that it's Joe Biden anymore. Yeah, I don't believe it either, especially when you look at the fact that, you know, this last week he was able to have a press conference. It was a good reminder of why they typically don't let him have press conferences, because he sat there and he admitted that, at least from his standpoint, he referred to it as a minor incursion, which is to say that, look, if Russia goes into Ukraine in some way, or even into some of these autonomous regions that Ukraine claims as its own, then the United States would not necessarily come in and declare World War III. Now, to you or I, that may seem like it's common sense for the U.S. to hold back a little bit from going towards World War III. However, what immediately transpired after that was that the White House and every other member of the Biden administration was working overtime to come back and say, no, no, we Biden didn't really mean that. What he actually meant was that the U.S. fully supports Ukraine and there will be swift and severe consequences if 
if Russia does anything. We've seen Blinken now back that up. And so I think when you're looking at Biden, it's clear in those moments that he's not calling the shots. And it does make you wonder, if not, then who is calling the shots? Who is sitting there directing his entire administration to then come back and play catch up and try to say, well, he didn't really mean what he said. And oh, by the way, he's not allowed to have press conferences anymore. Well, uh, you know, the United States fought most of the Second World War when it joined uh, under Roosevelt, who was physically handicapped. Uh, but his mind was crystal clear. And uh, a very great wartime president he turned out to be. Uh, but here you might be going into a war uh, with a man who is not physically handicapped, but is mentally degraded to the point uh, that it must be a clear and present danger to the Republic that at the bottom of his bed is the nuclear football. I don't understand why more people in the media, in the political class, are not actually calling that situation out in the U.S. Oh, I agree, absolutely. And especially when you look at the fact that okay, if Joe Biden can't handle it, then you have someone like Kamala Harris who can't seem to get through a single interview, let alone, I don't really want to know what she would do when it comes to a situation like that in terms of foreign policy, because she would be in one of those places of trying to prove herself and trying to prove that she could take on a country like Russia and she would fail miserably as a result. Behind her, you've got Nancy Pelosi, who looks like she's 110 years old and has been in Congress for decades upon decades. I mean, the U.S. really isn't she's doing better. too hot in she, terms of she's, she's better before lunchtime, as we right. say here. Uh, Rachel, thanks. Uh, I'm so grateful to you. Thanks for your time again on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, will Sue Gray condemn Boris Johnson in her Partygate report? Um, overwhelmingly, people think that she will not. Let's see if that one turns out to be right. It's still present, the old COVID-19 in Belmarsh. There's still people going down with it in the prison wing in which Julian Assange, the world historic publisher and journalist, whistleblower and truth teller, has now been long incarcerated. Tomorrow, uh, the High Court in London will deliver a decision on whether or not Julian Assange is to be allowed to appeal to the Supreme Court in Britain against the decision a month ago to allow his extradition to the United States. If the decision goes Julian's way, the bad news is he presumably remains in Belmarsh, although an attempt will undoubtedly be made to finally get bail on a tag so that he can await the appeal before the Supreme Court at home. If he loses tomorrow, the matter immediately reverts to that paragon of virtue, Priti Patel, the British Home Secretary, whose final decision on whether to allow Julian to be sent into the maw of the US injustice system will be made. One of the best and most noble campaigners for Julian Assange is Dr. Deepa Driver, a trade union leader and a campaigner of very great distinction. And she joins us now on the eve of this decision.
It must be nerve-wracking, uh, Dr. Driver, not just for you and me, uh, but more particularly for Julian's family and for Julian himself. Uh, set the scene for us as we await the decision tomorrow. I hope you can hear me, George. Yes, very well. Thank you, thank you very much for having me on and for repeatedly making Julian's case because, as you know, the mainstream media are being really, um, really quiet about the issues that are at stake. And while there is widespread support for Julian across all the human rights organizations now and across all the mainstream media even, not enough is being said about what Julian revealed and why he is in this situation. And the situation right now is one of something called lawfare, where you conduct war through the law. And the war that is being conducted in respect of Julian is to slowly wear him down, death by a thousand cuts. And as you pointed out, he suffered a stroke in prison. Uh, he is quite unwell. And yet he is being put through a horrendous process while at the same time, the real war criminal, Tony Blair, uh, is being knighted and honored by the Queen. Um, the situation with Julian is such that at the moment, he, he, he won his case at the magistrate's court stage to not be extradited to the United States. The US government then appealed that decision at the High Court and won. And now the next stage is for Julian to be given permission for his case to be taken to the Supreme Court. And that permission is given by the very same two judges who took the decision at the high court level that Julian's, or the original decision on Julian should be undone and indeed that uh, permission should be given to extradite or it'll go back to the lower courts for that to then go to Priti Patel to put the papers forward. Now there's another side to this that Julian's story and his arguments have never been really properly heard. And that's what's called a cross appeal. And so if Julian wins tomorrow, i.e. they allow him to, um, to appeal to the Supreme Court, then that appeal will continue and we'll see what the Supreme Court says. If Julian loses, it goes back to the magistrate's court to be rubber stamped and then sent on to Preeti Patel. At that stage, his lawyers can then launch what is called a cross appeal to contest the other four grounds of the um, of the lower court verdict that they lost. So I hope that makes some sense. It's to it where does. We are. It does. Uh, but I'm right in saying, Amantai, that even a victory tomorrow almost certainly means another year or more. Uh, of incarceration in Belmarsh for a very sick prisoner. Indeed, and he's suffered over a decade of arbitrary detention, um, and the last three years of which have been at Belmarsh. The, 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 at the heart of all this is this lack of recognition within the British courts that Julian sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, that his life was at stake. Now we know from information that has been available through Yahoo News 
30 U.S. government insiders have now confirmed that the United States planned to murder him or kidnap him from the Ecuadorian embassy. So he is now being released on the basis of assurances by the U.S. government. And this is the very same government and the very same CIA and FBI who will be responsible for the for determining the conditions of his treatment in the US. So it is all these people who tried to kill him who are now being, you know, in a, in a position of control. So, you know, the, the UK is not recognizing the fact that he sought asylum from these murderers. And uh, it's, it's very distressing to watch this injustice taking place before our eyes with all these bewigged judges and these fantastic old buildings and this talk of the rule of law, when actually what it is is murdered in plain sight. If it goes to the Supreme Court, will the Supreme Court hold effectively uh, a hearing on the cross-appeal issues also, or only on the narrow grounds? I believe it is only on the narrow grounds at this stage. The cross-appeal process, it depends on whether Julian's lawyers have, um, I guess there are various elements to this, but my understanding is that the cross-appeal process is likely to only be activated at the point at which Priti Patel says extradite. And Julian's lawyers have already put in their intention to cross-appeal, which has been lodged with the courts, and the courts have acknowledged that. But at this stage of the process, what is going to the Supreme Court to be looked at is the High Court decision and whether that should stand. Because if the Supreme Court says, no, the High Court decision was wrong, then the lower court verdict presumably stands. It's all very interesting because much of this is, um, as in much of Julian's case, most of these things are have not been seen before. We haven't seen a journalist prosecuted under the Espionage Act. We haven't seen a journalist seeking asylum because somebody's trying to kill them. And then when we haven't seen that journalist being tortured through the British justice system in such a plain and open way. And we haven't seen the mainstream media colluding in that torture by smearing and destroying him while he was being tortured. Now, I'm assuming that you and other campaigners will be outside the court tomorrow. Uh, tell us the details for anyone who can get down there. Certainly. The, the Committee to Defend Julian Assange and Don't Extradite Assange, I guess, will both, the committee is the grassroots group and Don't Extradite Assange is the formal campaign, will both be outside the court from 9am tomorrow morning. So if anybody wants to be at the Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand, that's the place to be. At 9am? Um, at 9am, from 9am onwards. The pronouncement will be at 10.45 at the court. Um, there will be there will be a number of us who will be inside the court, uh, myself as a legal observer, and many, I hope many journalists. But there will also be a vast number of supporters, I hope, because it's it's very difficult in this process to get supporters outside the courts. Firstly, because the COVID regulation was being misused, and thereafter, because we get to know at the very last moment that the hearing is taking place. On the, on the Monday. For example, we only found out on Friday that 
we would get the pronouncement on Monday. So to organize people at this time when everybody's you know, quite isolated is quite difficult. So any support that those who are in London or indeed outside can give by being outside the court is much appreciated. We need to make the government see, as we have done in Kill the Bill, that the people care. Dr. Driver, thank you very much indeed. I hope that we can celebrate at least partial good news. Annie is in Paris on, uh, on the Assange case. Annie, welcome back. Um, hello, George. Um, hello. Just a question. Don't you think that, uh, that it will be, uh, the case will be allowed to go to the, the appeal will be allowed to go to the Supreme Court? I do, Supreme yeah. <laughs> I'd be amazed if we don't win that tomorrow. But don't you think that it's that they're just going through the motions and that actually it's a foregone conclusion that the uh, Supreme maybe. Court is going to uh, rule in just the same way? I would summarise it this way, Annie. Uh, of all the institutions in my country, the one that is least corrupted is the upper reaches of the judiciary. That's the best I can say. decision though, isn't it? No, uh, these judges in the Supreme Court are there for life, no one can remove them, uh, and they must have some professional, juridical uh, care for their reputation uh, in history, for the importance of the law and the rule of law. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, we can depend on them, not at all. But of all the institutions that we have, the upper reaches of the judiciary are the least corrupted. That's the best that I can say. Mm. <coughs> I, I think it was a lawyer who's, who uh, said to you that he felt that Assange was too important to free, which was a very chilling thing to hear. But I mean, yeah. I think he's probably right. I feel that if he's ever freed one day, it will only be when he's considered no longer a threat and that when he's a mental and physical wreck. Dear That's God. very pessimistic. A very, very, say, very know, pessimistic, but, uh, yeah. Let's go to Lamsky in Bournemouth. Go ahead, sir. How are you? <coughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm running out of voice, but go on. Well, uh, I just wanted to say about Russia. Yeah. Uh, I've legitimate reason to be wary of NATO encroaching on Russian borders through former Soviet um, republics, yeah. because NATO have basically been, you know, uh, involved in regime change and war in the Middle East, you know, via America and the UK. Even in Latin know. America, did you know that the North Atlantic country of Colombia uh, is now a member of NATO? I didn't know that, yeah. but it doesn't surprise <clears throat> me. Mm. But, you know, NATO are very aggressive and Russia are, are, have legitimate reasons to be wary. And if they want to move troops around in their own country, then, you know, that's up to them. But, you know, I think Putin is kind of testing NATO's, you know, um, resilience politically in some kind of hijinked uh, manoeuvres. But, he's, you know, he's quite, it's quite legitimate for him to do that because it's within his own country. And also, with NATO and the UK supporting what would be fascist uh, sympathisers within the Ukraine, it doesn't surprise me that NATO, UK, uh, and America, the US, uh, are like that. Because, you know, 
they're very right wing. They're very, you know, the junta in America. Well, no, I, I, I mean, uh, the British people played a heroic role in defeating fascism and Nazism if they knew that some of the weapons that we're sending are going to actually be on the shoulders and in the hands of actual Nazis, I think the majority of people in Britain would be absolutely horrified by it. Lamsky, I'm sorry, I have to cut you short because there's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Um, Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, just, well, quick points. Um, I thought these speakers were excellent, like the Congo man, is it Vijay Prashad? Vijay Prashad, he's a simply wonderful uh, teller other, of yeah. history. And that Dina Bryan on the Ukraine. I yes, mean, he's, I, he's spent a lot of great, years there, yeah. Great speakers and education. And, I mean, it's so depressing with the other lady, Deepa Driver. I, um, I, I get so depressed on that, on the sound, really. Mm, mm. But the, the quick thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you interpret woke? Woke? Um, I know how I did. I interpret it, but I just want to know how you do. Yeah. Uh, well, it's come to be known as an extreme sensibility to issues of identity politics, a fetishization uh, of issues of of sexuality, of race, uh, of sexual orientation, of gender, uh, and uh, general political correctness. Uh, Preoccupate, you know, yeah. putting uh, your pronoun on uh, how you want to be known as he, him, she, her, uh, on your yeah. uh, bios and so on. We'll have to discuss it another time, really, Norma. It's a good question and an important one, but we've reached the end of the show. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. If so, come back next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.